Welcome to New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcast at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can subscribe on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at erik.anderson at nllutheran.com. good news comes to us this morning from Luke, the 24th chapter, and this is what it says. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again? Then they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home amazed at what had happened. Well, how can a a good God allow bad things to happen? I mean, this is a question that has weighed on you in your life. Maybe you didn't say it quite like that, but there's a form of that question that you've said or thought. And that's because it doesn't take very much life experience to realize that there's injustice in the world. I mean, even at an early age, you probably had an experience like this. You were in middle school or high school, and you had this friend who was a great guy or she was a great girl, and all of a sudden, there was a car accident. And before you knew it, she was gone. And you already, at an early age, began to wrestle with this tension. Or maybe you're a little bit older, and you're a Christ follower, and you're really reading the Bible, you're really trying to live out life by his principles. And so you started a business, and you decided, I'm going to do it God's way. I'm going to be honest and upright, and I'm going to do it all right. But your business, it struggles. I mean, you make enough to feed the family, but it never really thrives like you envisioned it thriving. But you look down the road, and there's that guy. He's underhanded, and he lies, and he cheats, and his business thrives, and his house is beautiful, and he has the nicest cars on the block. And you think, how can this be fair? I'm doing everything right. He's doing everything wrong, but yet he is the one who's thriving. Or you're just about to retire, and you've been really, really careful with your money. I mean, you've put money into savings, and you've been really, really smart and wise, and you've been careful where no one else was careful. And not only that, but you've been very, very generous. You've been giving faithfully to your church, and you've really helped support some great ministries where God has placed you. But just about that time, when you're going to turn 65, you go to that doctor visit. 
just an annual checkup, no big deal, you're feeling fine. But he calls you back in. He says, we have some bad news. I'm sorry to inform you that you only have a month, six months, one year to live. And all those dreams and all that focus that you put into saving money to spend some time traveling the world, to spend some time with the grandkids, it's all instantly gone. And you feel this tension and you feel this injustice in the world. Or maybe you've lived a pretty good life. You're 80, you're 90 years old, and and you've been pretty blessed. You're pretty healthy, even though being pretty old. But you look down through your family, and you see your great-granddaughter. And she's a great girl. You love her to death. And you know she'd be a great mom. But unfortunately, her husband and her, they keep trying, keep trying, keep trying, and nothing happens. Well, that one time when they actually do get pregnant, it's short-lived because... The baby dies, unfortunately. And you look around the world and you see all the other unfit mothers. How could a good God allow such a great young lady not to have kids when he lets everyone else have kids? I mean, she would be the ideal, perfect mom. You see, we all live with this tension. We've all asked ourselves this question because we've all experienced life. And we know that life isn't fair. And we go to church on Sunday and we hear the pastor and he says, God is good and God loves you. And you read it in the Bible and you read it in your devotions and you hear it in songs. But you really question if it's true. Because how can there be a good God if bad things happen? In fact, this is probably the question that you've been wrestling with that made you step away from faith. Maybe this is why you walked away from faith a long time ago and you're here this morning because it's Easter. And you know you have to go to Easter service because that's what everyone does. Or you have to go to Easter service because grandma told you, if you don't go to Easter service, there's no food for you. Everyone else is going to feast, but you're going to sit in the corner. And so you're like, I can deal with this. It's only an hour. I'll dress up and go and I'll smile and nod and shake hands and it's going to be fine. But the truth is inside, as you wrestle with this tension, as you've had these thoughts, you've long ago given up on a God like this. There can't possibly be a God in the life that I live, in the world that I live, in the experiences that I've had. Or maybe you're not quite there, but you're definitely on the fence. I mean, you were a regular church attender, but now it's like, I I, kind of believe, but I kind of don't believe. And you start seeing your church attendance slide. I mean, it's not really something you're prioritizing because because of the feelings you've had and the experiences you've had and the recent tragedy you've you've gone through. And so you're kind of questioning if this is all real anyways. And you're kind of tottering. In fact, you're, you're probably more leaning and you're ready to walk out the door. Or, or maybe, maybe you've been in faith for a long time. And you trust even though you have some doubts. But you know it's really, really hard when your friend walks up to you, your neighbor walks up to you, and they ask you that question. How can there be a good God if bad things happen? And you find yourself stuttering. You don't really have an answer. It's not really affecting you, but you know you feel ill-equipped to help them, and you just go home feeling sad and upset. You wish you had an answer And inside, that question does haunt you a little bit. You see, if you live in that space, which we all live in that space because we've all lived life and we're all human, you're not alone. See, this room is filled with people having that thought right now. And we're all thinking through the life experience that we've had where that rings true. We've seen the injustice. We've seen the hardship. We've seen and felt the heartache. Well, not only do we feel that, but people in the past felt that as well. In fact, as we step into our piece of history today, as we step into our story today, we're going to encounter some men called the disciples. 
And they were feeling this exact same way. See, what they had just experienced was they were having a supper that they didn't know was going to be their last supper with their friend Jesus. And as he sat there, he told them this. He said, one of you will betray me. One of you is evil. One of you will turn your back on me. Now, by this time, they had believed that, that this guy encompassed everything good. I mean, they had been around for three years, and some of them even thought he was perfect. I mean, he was the pinnacle of goodness. How could one of them turn on him? But that's exactly what happened. That prediction came true. And they saw their Savior. They saw their Jesus. They saw their friend, this good guy, get taken in front of the court and convicted and put up on a cross. And he died. And they looked up and they thought, how can a good God allow this to happen? How can there be a good God if the best person we have ever known dies a criminal's death? Well, three days later, they would have an answer for this question. And it's recorded in the book of Luke. And this is what it says. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, They came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. So right away, we step into the story. We step into this piece of history and we see the word they. Now we're not talking about the disciples yet. We're actually talking about a group of ladies, which would be incredibly significant later. Now it's a Sunday morning and they're coming to anoint the body. And the reason they're coming to anoint the body is because in that day, they didn't have great funeral homes and stuff like we have. There wasn't an embalming process. So as the body decomposed immediately, they would put a bunch of strong smelling stuff on top of the body to deodorize it because otherwise that smell would, would seek and find people and people would just hate the smell. And so they deodorize the body. Now, the reason they were there on Sunday and not on Friday when Jesus died is because as Jesus died, the sun was going down and that meant it was the start of Sabbath and they could not work or do anything on the Sabbath. So once Jesus died, they saw it was too late to anoint the body. So on Sunday morning, early dawn, they got up and they made their way to the tomb to say goodbye to Jesus, to anoint the body, to deodorize the body for everybody. And this is what happened. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. You see, when they arrived, there should have been a stone in front of the tomb because there was a stone in front of every tomb. And the reason there was a stone in front of every tomb is because it kept the animals out. You see, as the body decomposed, the animals would catch wind of it and they would come to the tomb and they would ravage the body. And you can just imagine what a horrific scene this would be without a stone because the body would get torn up and the body parts would be dragged around into the wilderness or into town. I mean, it would just be awful. And so they put a stone in front to keep the animals out. When the ladies walked up, they they walked into a very different experience. The stone was rolled away. That's what happened. But when they went in, they did not find the body. You see, as they walked up and the stone was rolled away, this would be very weird and very strange, but they thought, well, maybe someone knew we were coming. Maybe somebody knew that we didn't have a chance to anoint the body and they knew we were women and we couldn't push the stone because it was very, very, very heavy. And so they saw us coming, they pushed the stone away. So they went in. What did they expect to find? They expected to find Jesus. They expected to anoint the body. They expect to say goodbye, close it up, and walk away and and just continue the grieving process. But instead, they found nothing. Well, Luke goes on. 
While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. You see, as they, they walked in and they looked around, they would be very, very confused. They'd be very, very perplexed. I mean, dead people just don't get up and, and walk away. So they were caught in this confusion. Where could the body be? What could have happened? And then that confusion, it turned to anger. Because this is what they knew about the Romans. The Romans would hang you on a cross if you were an enemy of the state, and they would disgrace you up on the cross. But then as a second layer of disgrace, they would take your dead body down from the cross and they'd throw you into a common grave with all the other criminals, nothing special. But there was a rich guy, his name was Joseph. And Joseph paid Pilate, or probably paid Pilate, to get a special treatment. And so he got a special deal to get Jesus and put him into an untouched tomb, a tomb for his family that he gave to Jesus. And so as they were there, as they were confused, as they were angry, they didn't know what was going on. Two men show up. And we know in the other gospel writings that these two men were angels. And we also see that because of their dazzling clothes, which doesn't mean they were wearing very nice name brand clothes. It means it was something abnormal. And these two angels show up, and this is what they say. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. And the women responded like you would respond, like I would respond this afternoon if an angel shows up in my house. I would freak out, right? I'd be terrified and you would be too. And this is what they did. They fell on their face, which is like a little kid pulling the blanket over their head, isn't it? If I just don't look, maybe they'll just go away. If I don't look, maybe they're not real. And they're just awestruck by these guys. And this is the message. Why are you looking for Jesus here? He's alive. People who are alive, they don't hang out in tombs. Only dead people are in tombs. And the angels go on. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again? You see, the great irony of this is that as Christ was winding down his days, as he saw the cross coming, as he knew what was going to happen, he began to give the disciples some truth. He began to actually give them a prediction. And he told them, I'm going to die, but don't worry, I'm coming back. In fact, he got really, really specific. He said, I'm going to die and I'm going to be on a cross, which is something they could never fathom. It would make no sense. And then three days later, I'm going to come back. See, when he told the story to them, when he told it to the disciples, when he told it to these ladies who are present, they would have thought, oh, it's just, it's just one of his stories again. It's just one of his parables where he tries to take this heavenly truth and, and cram it into a human storyline so we can maybe comprehend it, but we never really quite comprehend it. It's just one of those. It has to be one of those because it, it makes no sense that such a good man would end up on a cross. This storyline makes no sense. So it's just one of those parables. It's just one of those stories that maybe someday when we ask him, he'll explain what it all means. See, I think there was a second layer too. I think the disciples and I think these ladies were responding like we all respond when we get really bad news, unbelievably bad news, that somebody we love is dying. We deny it. No, no, no. This isn't going to happen to you. It happens to everyone else. It's not going to happen to you. And you just kind of live in this space of denial. But then the angels wanted them to know. This just wasn't a story. It was a prediction. It was a prediction that Jesus would die on Friday, one day. He would rest in the tomb Saturday, two days. And on the third day, Sunday, he would come back. This is what happened. 
Then they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all this to Levin and to all the rest. You see, the ladies, they remembered this prediction. And this prediction for them was solidifying this moment that this is actually what happened. And so they did the natural thing. They went to tell all their friends who loved Jesus as well. So they went to the disciples and they went to all the other remaining believers, the very few who still believed after this horrific event. And they told him. And then Luke gives us a very significant detail. This is what he writes next. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. Now this seems insignificant. He's just giving a laundry list of of ladies' names who were there. But this is what we have to remember. Luke, the writer of this book, Luke was a doctor. He was a man of science. He was a natural skeptic. And the reason he was writing this book is because after he'd heard rumors of Christ's resurrection, he began to do the research because he had to know for himself. And so he started engaging with these people who were eyewitnesses. He started engaging with people who had talked with Christ after the resurrection. Then he looked at the prophecies, 400, 500, 600 years old, and saw that they were actually lining up. And this was undeniable proof for Luke. And so he formulated a plan to write down a biography about Christ. Specifically, he wrote it to his friend named Theophilus. And his point and his hope was to solidify Theophilus' faith. Little did he know that we'd be reading it today. But Luke did is he wrote down all the facts as they were, even the inconvenient facts. And this was incredibly inconvenient. You see, in that day and in that sphere of time, a, a woman's testimony counted for zero. In fact, it didn't matter how many women came to the court proceedings, if they all said the exact same thing, just because it was a female in that day, they would throw it out. It counted for absolutely nothing. So if Luke was trying to pull one over, if Luke was trying to deceive people, he would have never gone this route. This made absolutely no sense. You see, if Luke was trying to deceive the readers of this book, to try to convince them of something that was impossible and improbable, this is what he would write. There's two guys. Two guys went to the tomb. The stone was rolled away. Then went inside. There was no body. Two angels spoke to the two men. The two men told everyone, and everyone believed them because they were guys. That's that history, right? But that's not what Luke does. Luke does something incredible. He just writes down the facts. In fact, no one in this day, because of this situation, would believe him. In fact, not even the disciples. This is what Luke writes. But these words seemed to them, the disciples, like an idle tale. And they did not believe them. Good job, guys. So these ladies come up with the story, all the details. They're very, very excited. And what do the disciples do? Ah, it's just women. They're just hysterical. They're grieving. They don't believe him at all. They don't believe him. Even though they had the same prediction, it still fell on deaf ears. But one. One disciple listened. One disciple thought he better check it out. And this is what it says. But Peter, he got up and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home, amazed at what had happened. So Peter, he gives it a chance. He runs to the tomb. He looks, the stone is rolled away. He stoops in. He looks inside to see it for himself. Were there any signs that this isn't actually what happened? He looks at the linens. 
Are they torn? Are they shredded like an animal did this? Is, is there blood splatter? What has happened here? And after everything, and after the prediction, he's amazed. He believes 100% that this amazing, improbable story actually happened. See, this is what we learned today about the power of sacrifice. This is what we learned today about the power specifically of Christ's sacrifice. And it's this, that through Christ's sacrifice, we can trade despair for hope. Now, right now, some of you are thinking, this is the same message that I hear every Easter when I show up because grandma made me show up. I mean, this is nothing new. You proposed a question way back that you still haven't answered. I mean, this is just the classic story. We have hope. We have hope in Christ. So let's go back to that question. How can a good God allow bad things to happen? You see, when we ask that question, here's the problem with that question. Is that when we ask that question, we are always looking outside. We're always looking at the outside. We're always looking at the things that happen around us, the experiences that we've had, the person who's succeeding while we're failing, when we're doing everything right and they're doing everything wrong. We look at the outside, but we rarely look here. We rarely look at the darkness of our heart. We rarely look at the the brokenness that everyone knows we have or the brokenness that we've tucked away, the secret addictions that we have, or those thoughts that we have that we would actually do if we knew we would never get caught, the actions we would take if we knew our wife would never see or our kids would never know, we don't look inside. You see, here's the logical conclusion of a question that we proposed right away. The real question is, how could a good God allow me? Or how could a good God allow us? You see, if you really keep moving with that question and really asking that question, the, the real thing would be this. How could a good God allow anyone to exist? In fact, if this was really played out, this is what would happen. There would be nobody to ask this question. But the disciples, in this moment, they knew the answer. They knew the answer. That a good God did not eradicate evil because he would have eradicated the ones that he loved. But instead, this is what he did. He came down, wrapped himself in flesh. He walked with three years doing ministry. And then he went to the cross after he predicted that he would go to the cross. And then he rose from the dead just like he predicted to connect with us. To connect with those who are broken. Connect with those who are evil. Connect with those who have secret addictions and thoughts that we would never tell anybody because we'd be way too embarrassed to say them out loud. That that good God didn't remove evil, but he joined it to redeem us. He joined it because he loved us. He joined it to resurrect us and take us to his kingdom. And that's why, that's why we actually can trade despair for hope. We can trade the despair for this life and the brokenness of this life for the hope that there is something better. But here's the even bigger beauty of Christ. The even bigger beauty of his life is that he didn't just show up and go to the cross. He didn't just instantly appear on the cross, became the perfect sacrifice, rose from the dead, and moved on. He actually lived among us. For three years, he taught us, and he showed us how to live well. And then he had followers. And those followers continued to teach and help us know how to live well. And all those things are recorded for us 
in the Bible. And this means this, that we not only can trade despair for hope in the eternal, we can trade despair and hope for the present. That means that God has something to say for your broken marriage. That means that God has something to say about your broken finances and every other area of your life that you know is failing and falling apart, that God has something to say and that's why he showed up. And when you understand that, and when you begin to live that out, and when you trade despair for hope, you will understand the true power of Christ's sacrifice. 